0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, this is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel, and today we are pleased to have Professor Tom McLeish with us. Uh, professor Tom McLeish is a physicist, academic interdisciplinary leader, um, and a writer. He's an inaugural professor of natural philosophy in the School of Physics, Engineering, and Technology at the University of York in England, and today he's here to talk to us about a uh, the second edition of a great book he wrote called The Poetry and Music of Science, Comparing Creativity in Science and Art. Tom, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Mutesa. I'm really happy to join you today. Thank you. Uh, so to
0: start, can you please briefly tell us how the book came about? And Because you're, you're a quite well-known writer in, in the area of science and humanities. But can you tell us about the idea of this book?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, of course, my core discipline is physics. I'm I'm a scientist. I do write in the humanities as well, because I think that science belongs there. And I've always been so saddened by the way we have disrupted and fractured, fragmented our disciplinary world, as if the world itself knew about the difference between chemistry and English and history. The world is the world. So I love interdisciplinary stuff. But what catalyzed this particular book on comparative creativity in science and the arts is came from a series of high school visits I love talking going to schools and perhaps the 17 18 year old 16 plus um just to stretch them a little bit you know introduce them to what goes on if they carry on this um uh, is a bit, bit further you know what do universities do um and then so I, I i perhaps talk about science and faith or science and arts or history of science and then you soon you get a picture don't you if you talk to pupils young pupils about which ones are really on it yeah you know, which ones are really bright and and some of those i'll I'll ask well you you really you 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 holding me <laughs> against the wall aren't you But everything i'm saying why didn't you do science because in the uk or in england particularly you might know it's possible to drop all your sciences and indeed all your humanities at age 16. If you wish, it's appallingly underproviding our uh, young generation. Anyway, that's another question. But the really bright ones would never say, oh, because it's too hard for me. They would say, because there's no room for my own imagination in science or there's no room for creativity in science and of course at this point i froze in science because i am a scientist i've worked my nearly 40 years as a career in research physics and i know that enormous amounts of imagination science is you know, in brief, reimagining the world. So I realized I had to write about this and talk about it and have YouTube talks about it and and, and everything and 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 work. I was at that point also chair of the um, education committee at the Royal Society, which is our national academy for sciences in in the UK, um, mm. and we were able to do something there. That's what was very exciting about serving in those sorts of ways to actually try and help. Uh, pu- science teachers with their pupils at all levels introduce creativity into their mm. science experience.
0: The story you said kind of sounded familiar to me as well, because when I was in high school, I'm originally from Iran. And in Iran, when you're in high school, second year, you need to choose a major. So it's science, math, uh, humanities, and then vocational. So I did science because there was a bit of pressure on me on the side of family as well. But in university, I switched to literature and literature. Uh, I remember the very first reason that I gave was well there's more creativity in humanities in science i have to f- follow rigid structure and i was plagued by i was plagued by that idea until even 7 or 8 years ago and it gradually began to change when i kind of broadened my horizons and uh, you, in the book, you talk about, uh, I think one of the most important part of the book is the three modes of creative expression. We have the visual, the narrative, and the abstract. So I, I would be grateful if we could talk about these three modes. And it's a question also popped up in my mind when we were talking about creativity, which you can address after that, which is, is the nature of creativity in humanities and science the same or still true that you exercise creativity in science? You still need to follow a process, a methodology.
1: It's a very good question, because the very reason that the structure of the book, this trifold structure, ended up as it is, is because of the blurred distinction between arts and sciences. You see, I thought I was going to write the book along the structure of some chapters on scientific creativity, some chapters on artistic creativity, and then some discussion. And you can't write that book. Um, my methodology was twofold. I read extensively in the history of, of artists and scientists reflecting on their own creative process, mathematicians too, um, Adamar famously, uh, Beveridge for, 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 for Science, Henry James in the novel and so on, but also interviewed people I know or who, or who with whom I could get introductions to who are composers, artists, chemists, physicists, mathematicians, journalists, all sorts of people who create things. And I I asked them to tell me the story. I said, well, don't, don't, don't give me the polished version of something you're particularly happy with having been brought to birth de novo from nothing. But tell me the story—the twists and turns, the ups and downs, what you originally set out to do, um, and maybe you couldn't do that—and all the story. Now, the scientists typically need a little glass or two to get them going on this because we cover our tracks. You see, we're not supposed to to, to talk about this. um But when you hear the story, I I realize I was getting a story, a narrative, a kind of a narrative which I've called the the, the, creation, the the creation narrative of human creativity. By this, I don't mean all the different cultures, creation narratives of the cosmos, beautiful and wonderful though they are. I mean the innate human story of how we bring things to bear. We have a distant vision. We try some things. They fail. We spend a long period of time in the wilderness. We think about things. We interact with others, sometimes blessedly, an idea appears, a completely new route we hadn't seen before, and that turns out to be the way to finishing it. There's much rejoicing. Interestingly, it's, a, it's an emotional story, and I think we might we might be talking on that a little bit later. But what I couldn't do was divide this between arts, humanities, and sciences. What I did find it helps me. Other people have characterized creativity in different ways that there's this, some people create visually, they have visual ideas in their minds, or they even think visually on paper, obviously visual artists, for example, but many scientists, many mathematicians think visually. Not all. Uh, some creativity happens through language, through words. So poetry is a sublime example of this, of course. Um, and, and literature itself. But there turns out to be this deep, deep connection between literature and experimental science that I hadn't anticipated. And that's a wordy subject too. And then the third category is really um, apophatic. It's by what's left. When it's not visual and it's not literary, when what is it? And there is this abstract mode of thought, which one comes across in topics like mathematics. Um, theology, sometimes music, par excellence, and so I think that is the level at which, at which mathematics and music link—not the trivial um, method level at which they're sometimes talked about linking, but very deep down in their abstract, sort of transcendent uh, nature. So, um, yes, yeah, so that was how the threefold structure arose. I forgot there was another thing you wanted me to pick up on the uh, um,
0: yeah it was the uh the idea of creativity in science and in humanities because my assumption oh, is that yes. in science you still need to follow a set of uh, sure. scientific reason let's say or scientific yep. method
1: they do but of course the arts do as well so i think most helpfully here is uh, a phrase coined by uh, Jacques Monod which is um day science and night science um that that uh, again, scientists we don't admit to this very much, but we should do. Of course, there is the formal um, experimental method: checking hypotheses, um, carefully making measurements, uh, carefully doing calculations or simulations. That's what we call day science. In fact, there's a podcast by a couple of friends of mine called called Night Science, who they where they interview uh, interview. Um, uh, Biologists predominantly, but other people from the world of science as well, um, to get to talk about their other side of the coin. You see, if you don't have imagination, you don't have a hypothesis to work on. There's this night science where all the creativity happens. Now, you might say, well, you know, but in art, of course, it's all, it's all, um, it's all the imaginative creativity. By no means. There's a highly technical, methodological um, whether you're composing music, or or or, or putting pay, oil paint down on canvas with a blade, or, um, uh, or 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 going over your your manuscript, analysing each word, rubbing out, finding new metaphors, getting it right, there's a met. Artists, all creative artists, have methods, which to me map very closely onto the more formal methodological aspects of science you've talked about. So. Although that there are differences, obviously that you know, for example, science we will come on to creativity constraint, but science is constrained by the real world, but artists have different types of constraints, but they do have constraints, so whenever i um, try to explore the differences, the thinking takes me more towards similarities and then a mapping between those similarities so it's looking more increasingly close to me <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: it's uh, when i was reading your book one thing i found fascinating was that how you had carefully uh, mapped out or outlined the creative process of scientists go through and found these comparisons that you mentioned and i was reminded and something that humanists are usually accused of is that what they produce is not really knowledge because they don't follow a set of uh let's say a met- they don't have a methodology they don't have the scientific method to follow and last year, I was reading this book uh, called Humanist Reason, History and Argument and Plan by uh, Eric Hale, whom you might know is a professor of uh, comparative literature. And he had uh, actually, he did the same thing you've done in science, but he did it in humanities. That's still in humanities, we also do follow process. We follow our methodology to come to that final polished product. So it's still knowledge, but it's a different kind of knowledge, like creativity that you have argued for, it exists in science, but yeah, the nature of it might be different, but the process, the artistic process is still the same. And and um, th- this is the second edition of the book, and you have added a whole new chapter to this second edition, which is um, poetry and science. And I guess this is your favorite <laughs> chapter as well, because I know you are big fan of music as well so can you tell us about this new addition to this chapter yes
1: well i mean they could have had me up under as it were the trade descriptions act as we call it in the the uk with publishing a book whose title was the poetry music of science and not really discussing poetry very much in the first edition so i knew i had to do something but in particular i had not realized it's my own ignorance i'm just learning all authors we learn as we go as we write of course um uh wordsworth in his um the preface to the second edition of the lyrical ballads um i did i did mention this in the first edition prophesied almost it's like a prophecy that one day science would be as appropriate a feedstock if you like or, or or food for the poet just as much as any other experience of humankind as enjoying and suffering beings as enjoying and suffering beings but of course. At that stage, science was still confined to a small, as it were, almost elite, as it basically is still today. So, because of that, I thought because more people neither enjoy nor suffer from science, and actually, when, when engaged creativity, one suffers as well as enjoys. That's part of the story. Wordsworth had it absolutely right. It's not yet. It's not yet. And I felt it was not yet. But actually, I've discovered there is a a, a wonderful, rich continuous seam of poetic thinking um through the ages uh, in fact from ancient of course lucretius his great poem De Rerum natura on on, on 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 the nature of things is a poem it's a it's a latin poem um and you know i've even discovered well yeah not discovered but conject- discovered to the point of conjecture that huh poetry was quite a good candidate for the canonical form of scientific writing as experimental science took off in the 17th century. So, for example, at the the beginning of the 17th century, the classic text on silk science and technology, uh, it's a book called On Silkworms and Their Flies, is is an extensive volume um, uh, in Octavia Rima. Margaret Cavendish wrote her Atomic Theory in Poetry. Um, of course, Milton has plenty to say about cosmology in Book Eight of Paradise Lost. So uh, arguably, um, science might have adopted, if it weren't for the Royal Society, and actually weren't for the plague historically that drove people out of London so they couldn't recite poetry to they had to write letters which became the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society. So it was the letter form became the standard rather than the poet form. I think it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long shot, but it might have been otherwise. Of course, in the 19th century, you have an antithesis to this. You have people like Keats writing poems, accusing poetry as unweaving the rainbow. Poe, Edgar Allan Poe accusing science as being that vulture, you know, eviscerates all the wonder from the world, Ugh. but I think they got it badly wrong, because science actually opens the doors, or can open the door to everybody, to new levels of wonder and glory and sublimity um, that uh, that we don't see with our ordinary eyes, and that's what that's, that's what what science is. And in our own day, there are many own times examples of um, quite wonderful. Um, science poets, So Rebecca Elson, I spent some time studying in the new chapter, a cosmologist, astronomer. She worked with the Hubble Space Telescope. Shadi, she died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the, the end of the 90s. Um, those who knew her still mourn her young loss. But she wrote beautiful poetry, which engaged with her science. And because poesis for which we get the word poetry but is also the ancient Greek word for, for, for really creativity like coming out of ourselves um, is, um, uh, is is so much part of science as we've already discussed um, uh, it turned out that just as soon as you open that door a whole new world open up opens up and like a parallel to the story I did have in the first edition of the novel fictional prose writing and experimental science so I think poetry goes along with theory because of its inventive um nature and its core conception of creativity under constraint you see um let me let me put it this way uh. Poetry, the, the, the creative step of poetry, is to is to tension the imaginative outward thrust, explosive thrust of of the of of um, uh, bringing to light, imaginative the new within the soul. Right, but if you just let imagination pour out of the table, you just have a mess. And like an English school teacher of mine once told me, I remember this lesson. It was the lesson on the sonnet. He said, Why do we have such tight poetic forms like the sonnet? Well, it's because it would be a mess. He said, You only write a sonnet when you fall desperately in love. <laughs> I won't tell you if I've ever written any sonnets or for But but um but he said, But you need it because you've got the the the, the more explosive or the more powerful, the poetic imagination, the tighter the constraint you need of form. That's where form comes in. It's the opposition of imagination form. Well, what could call upon the greater power of imagination than to reimagine the whole universe? And what could constitute the tightest form than to make that imagination conform to the universe we actually observe? So the whole scientific project falls into this category of writing a giant poem. (laughs) And that's why the chapter works.
0: It's a fascinating reflection. (laughs) Uh, Another fascinating part of the book that i would never thought about was uh, the rise of the novel in the 17th century. So you have this this speculation. The rise of novel in the 17th century and the emergence of experimental methods in science they happen to they, they they occur at the same time more or less so can you uh, expand on that please
1: yeah well it was pat war a professor of english a friend of mine at durham university where i was when i began the project that came to me when she heard of the project she said tom you know don't you that the coincidental rise of the early English novel and experimental method in science is not a coincidence, don't you? <laughs> and I said, Pat, really? Wow, what? Tell me more. And she pointed to um, examples of the early English novels. Well, obviously, it's, it's, you know, it's the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century. That's the time we're talking about. Um, let's take, well, you know, Margaret Cavendish, we've already mentioned, Um, in terms of the poetry but she also wrote arguably the first science fiction um, novel blazing worlds in the mid-17th century which is about another world which one reaches via the northern regions up in the sky and she wrote she wrote this novel as a a framework for her critique of experimental method that she was very critical of it and in a sense one should be um Because the idea that one could learn anything about interconnected, universal, complex nature by doing something as just disconnected, artificial, and simple as an experiment is very counterintuitive, except to us now, we're just used to it, and we think that people were silly by not inventing experimental methods hundreds of years before they did. They weren't. Uh, But uh, that's a little bit of an aside, although it does throw a theological hook, by the way, into this whole... um, whole question because it was Francis Bacon's theological analysis of grace that uh, that got over the activation barrier. so you know the part of this book i'm um, underneath the surface is this really interesting and complex story of science and religion which are tangled in much more interesting ways than the foolish and ahistorical conflict model we have today there uh, um didn't think we were going there but you have to really you have to because it's part of the story um so uh, daniel defoe not long after robinson crusoe what does he do he takes his whole world, is a little island, a single island. He puts one man on the island. He invents some goats, some particular species of goat. He gives the uh, the man a certain amount of rounds of ammunition left, and and then there are footprints of another human being um, and the rest. Now, the idea of the sheer chutzpah, as it were, you know, the, the uh, hubris of being able to create our own small worlds, simple enough for us to grasp. And to observe what happens in them is, what am I describing? Am I describing the novel? Or am I describing the experiment? And the answer is I'm describing both. So um, so that's really why the experimental method in science gets going. And then there are all sorts of ways in which they thread through history. Um, so um, uh, uh, um, Joseph Priestley, in a lecture to Warrington in the 1780s, remarked, isn't it true that, uh, that, n- that novels resemble scientific apparatus, like globes and orreries?" And he doesn't explain this. He said, and everyone nodded. And of course, the reason that everyone nods is because they are the ways into um, seeing through a small world that we humans can create in, in as it were, in image, that represent and give us information on the big world. So actually, this is theology again. I just have to um, read you just a little bit of something that Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote in his essay on the imagination, in his, his Biographica Literaria. He writes about imagination. He says, the primary imagination I hold to be the living power and primary agent of all creation as a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite i am see what he's doing he's saying that both poetry and literature and experimental method is like um like a mini creation a finite creation created by who not by God. It's like an image of the creation. It's been created by the image of God. So he call, he's calling on what's called the Imago Dei theology. Theology that humans are made in the image of God, because the big I am is is Moses. Of course, he's talking about Moses there and the burning bush and and that story. So um so actually, there's a tr- there's a a a, a a a a big triangle here over how literary poetry and science work together in very in a very human way being creative that somehow images the big creation that's probably the best way i can put it
0: yeah yeah it's it all makes sense and i i I never thought about uh i'd read that uh section i never thought about it in this sense uh let us let me ask you a final question um you're like i said you're a hardcore scientist at the same time you are an advocate of humanities and uh your friend I, I earlier talked to your friend a few months ago professor jim al-khalili who is more or less the same he also recently wrote a book yeah he wrote a book the joy of science absolutely um, he's also written hmm.
1: about the um the fantastic arab islamic contribution to science yeah and, yeah and um, he made a series of
0: documentaries nations. that's right Uh, And you know that these days in in UK, in Australia where I live, there is a lot of, especially after COVID-19, humanities are being defunded and there is a lot of focus on STEM. And in Australia, the government has even a a program where high school students are encouraged to do more STEM to boost economic productivity, of course. So how how do you see the future of humanities or or what do you think of this new trend in general?
1: i think it's desperately sad appallingly short-sighted and dehumanizingly destructive i have almost no words except those six they weren't bad were they it's words? but um and i do what i can to inveigh against them um so in my Royal society i mentioned before um i i was uh, i made sure and i'm not by uh, good news is i'm by no means alone um as a scientist in the UK, a relatively experienced one, in advocating for the humanities and advocating for the support of the British Academy right next door to us, for example, who's on the Academy of the Sciences, Social Sciences, and uh, uh, the humanities are so important. And this is the point. We began with this, didn't we? We began by reflecting on the fact that the world doesn't know about these disciplines. The world is the world. It's integrated. It has people and history and story, narrative. It has emotion. It has love in it. And all these things are real and true. And most of them are outwith and beyond the remit of science. Science, the way I like to think of science is as a humanity, as you might have picked up before. By the time you've by the time you've blurred the distinctions between scientific creativity and that of art and literature and poetry and music, then you begin you, know, uh, you begin to realise, wait a minute, if we insist on STEM, we're going to be dangerously blindfolding our next generation. We're not equipping them at all. We're hobbling them. And you know, the, the, the immense challenges that face us not just the global climate change, but the growth of population, fresh water, um, uh, the, the the you know the the possibility of, of of radical new discoveries in the cosmos that affect us uh, as humanity as well as scientifically um, uh, superbugs. You know, it's a disgrace that. You know that sixty years or fifty years on from the, from the foundation of the United Nations, there's still so much poverty in the world. It's within our grasp to solve these problems, and it's the focus on particular disciplines and narrowness that has been the cause of the failure. Um. So uh, w- it's all about being divergent thinking. We need to equip even at all else, we need to equip our young people to be richly endowed with what's called humanities thinking as well as science thinking, because it's all one thinking, really. And then even if you want to be instrumental about it, take one example, which is that of music. We know the scientific research has been done that offering music to every high school pupil individual instrumental tuition and the opportunity to sing, to listen to music, to think musically, not only is massively helpful for the mental health, but also assists and supports their logical deductive thinking. Well, of course it does, because in, in the same measure that nature does not know about our disciplinary divisions, our minds, our brains don't know about them either. They're all one. It's all interconnected. The brain is about being interconnected. So this is what I would say, and not just say, I would plea our governments to drop this very short-sighted policy. Ironically, not at all based on the scientific research that they claim to be supporting. Quite the opposite. It's just their gut prejudices, or you know, what they imagine will be electable. It's just dreadful. Um uh, And it's ignorant and it's dehumanising um and so that uh, that's it there's nothing good nothing good to be said about it at all um, but of course, we need as communities to be forensic about this, and what we need, for example, we need scientists to stand up for this because although of course our my humanities colleagues and professors and uh, heads of the of British Academy have huge weight. Of course, when they, want to, when they stand up for the humanities, the answer from the politicians of the Treasury is, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? But when the president of the Royal Society gets up and says, we should fund the humanities, we should make sure that, uh, that school pupils continue to study humanities, including music, available to the age of 18, um, and we believe that will serve the sciences better oh, that's a surprise. We didn't expect you to say that. We expect you to fight your corner. That's why it's so important that scientists get involved in rebalancing the books here and having a vision of integrated knowledge.
0: I couldn't have said it better myself. And you mentioned there were there are hundreds of examples of very well-known scientists who were poets, novelists, uh, critics, cultural critics as well, cultural critics as well. Uh yeah, and I hope more and more people like you, uh, more and more politicians, hear people like you and your colleagues as well. <laughs> Professor Tom McLeish, yeah, Professor Tom McLeish, thank you very much for your time uh, and speaking with us about your book on New Books Network.
1: It's been a massive pleasure, Morteza. Thank you so much.